Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. We're in New York City for our conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. And we have two guests with us today. Michael Schlein, the president and CEO of Axion, who I met through my better half, Rosemary Giordano Shore, uh, knew of Michael's work and said I had to get to know it because she was so impressed and inspired, Michael, by what you're doing. Um, and it's really great to have you on. I'm a big fan of Rosemary, as, as you know. Thanks. And Ronnie Mazumdar. Uh, did I pronounce that right, That's Ronnie? correct. Pretty uh, close or correct? No, it's good. Good, it's good, good, good. Ronnie's an extraordinary restaurateur here in New York. I haven't been to his restaurants, I was just telling you, which I'm <laughs> feeling bad about, but everybody I know has. They're really all the rage. Rahi, Salawala, and Ada Indian Canteen. That's right. Yes. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Um, Thank you. I'm, I'm going to start, Michael, by asking you two things. One is to tell us a little bit about how you ended up becoming the CEO and president of Axion International because that was not, it was related to the path you were on, but you were in the corporate world first and now you're running a very, very large and impactful nonprofit. And the second thing I'm going to ask you is why you suggested Ronnie be our other guest today because you know Ronnie better than I do. My path, I started out, uh, I started out doing investment banking for a couple of years straight out of school. And then I left to do um, politics and government. Like you, I sort of got the bug at an early age and got involved in political campaigns and then worked in New York City government in economic development. And then in the Clinton administration, I was chief of staff at the Securities and Exchange Commission. So I did a 10-year stint in, in public service. And then I got involved with uh, Wall Street and went back to what was still a small investment bank called Smith Barney right when we merged with Solomon Brothers and our parent travelers then merged with Citi. And so I was uh, part of the early days of Citigroup and I had a dozen year career at Citigroup. And for me, working at Axion today combines the best of both worlds. In public service, you're trying to make the world a better place. And in banking and financial services, you're trying to, it's very transactional. It's it's all about financial services, obviously. Today, Axion is a global nonprofit uh, that really is trying to make the world a better place. But day to day, we are investing in innovative companies that are trying to bring financial services to 3 billion people who the global system fails. I mean, the financial system works fairly well for most people, but for 3 billion people, they are completely left out of the global financial system. We're trying to change that. And left out, meaning they have no access to financial services that we take for granted? At all. So if you think about your own life here, you have credit cards, debit cards, ATMs on every corner. You can get insurance for your health, for your home, for credit to go to school or build a business. And think about this. You, you're generally speaking, your bills come in monthly and your income comes in monthly. And that's really, really, really convenient. For, the, for 3 billion people, they have none of that. The global system, the global banking system is invisible to them and they are invisible to it. And it, it doesn't work at all. And so a typical person living in poverty is a, a, a woman on a farm, let's say in Africa, she gets paid one time a year at the time of the harvest, has to make that money work year round, but she lacks a safe place to save. Think about that. We all take that for granted. There are banks on every corner here. But she lacks a safe place to save. To make a simple payment to keep the lights on, she may have to travel hours. She lives in an area that has uh, droughts and, and floods but can't get any insurance. 
There's no one to give her credit to help build her business. And she lives in a cash world. Here, we, with every transaction, we're developing a history. She is invisible. And so we're trying to make a system, a banking system, a, a financial system that works for everyone. The exciting thing is the new technologies that we have that are allowing us to uh, reimagine, just like you know, data and data analytics and our mobile phones and the internet are, are changing every aspect of our life. They also have enormous repercussions for how we can meet the financial needs of, of, of the poor all around the world. All right. When, and you're investing, we're going to come back and talk about this after you tell us a little bit more about Ronnie, but you're investing in for-profit businesses, Correct. Uh, which is different than what most nonprofits do, which I want to hear more about. But tell, tell us how come you suggested Ronnie be with us. <laughs> and ha- so, so, this is, so we're also the largest microfinance uh, network in the United States. And here in the United States, we're a direct lender. So we make, small lo- we make loans to small businesses. And again, the banking system, today banks aren't really interested in making loans lower than a million dollars. It's just not efficient. And so what you mean by microfinance is small, small. loans yes. to small Small mom and pop businesses, uh, early stage entrepreneurs, but people who need $50,000, not a million dollars. And they are just ignored by the banking system completely. And we, we lend to, and, and the people who are excluded from the banking system tend to be, uh, first of all, banks won't lend to anyone that, don't have, that doesn't have three years of audited financials. So if you're a starting entrepreneur, you don't have what they need to see, and they just won't talk to you. And <laughs> come back in three years, which of course is you know, death for an early stage entrepreneur, but it's also women, young people, people living in uh, uh, low and moderate incomes, it's, it's, it's income areas. It's basically, they are systematically excluded from the financial system. Ronnie was an early stage entrepreneur, and I'll, I'll let him tell the story, but Axion helped him get off the ground with one of his earliest restaurants. And how do you find each other, Ronnie? It was around the Hurricane Sandy time. Okay. And that's when I heard there's this place, this little institution, little is what I heard, uh, named Axion at the time. And I had no idea. Um, I was just about a few months into my then first ever business. Which was a restaurant? Which was a restaurant. So you had opened it up already? Yeah. Okay. It was, it's called the Masala Wala. Masala Wala. One of the things a lot of people don't recognize is that how important it is to survive that first year, especially if you're a first time business owner, if you are really, you've started everything on a shoestring budget, you really don't have much buffer to fall back on. So no one was expecting Hurricane Sandy to hit. Well, it did, and my business was closed for 12 days, depleting all inventory, literally. Now I am backed up in every way possible financially, and I'm looking to say, how do we move forward? The challenge that was happening was, number one, even though we had insurance in place, they said, well, even though you didn't have power, which caused all of these things to go wrong, um, it was... um, uh, it's not really a damage on the restaurant. It wasn't a flood damage. It was a power failure. So you need to speak to Con Ed. And, if they, and I'm like, what's the point of having an insurance? But point is, there's an opportunity cost involved at that specific time. And that's when I feel Axion came into play. I just learned about them from a friend. There was this like Goldman Sachs fund that was you know being created. I was like, okay, let me explore it. And honestly, in my head, I was like, this is never going to happen. It's some random whatever thing. It's going to take six months. I have to figure out something, and I didn't know what it was. I apply. Within two weeks, the money was in my account. Within two weeks? Within two weeks. It was probably a handful of forms. It was the fastest ever application process I've ever been through. And I was astonished because by the time they said they were done, I'm like, oh, God, this is when it really begins, the next level of questions. No, the money was in my account, instantly gave me the jump start. 
there's no way I would be where I am today if it isn't for places like Axion because that's where conventional lending, a lot of uh, established uh, you know, banks, et cetera, that's a, a little crack that we all fall through. And I'm going to ask you to back up a little bit even farther because sure. weren't you, uh, didn't you have an engineering degree Yeah, uh, from Rensselaer Polytech? Well, and I still do. I you still do. <laughs> they haven't take taken it away. It away. <laughs> but uh, so how did you get into the restaurant business in sure. the first place? Um, well, it was my father. Uh, so I'm a first generation immigrant in this country. So moved here in 96. The reason I mentioned that is because the moment you're kind of halfway into your life and you move in, you don't have that established credit that a lot of your peers might have. So again, going back to that same thing Michael was just mentioning, you are kind of starting, you already, you didn't get that head start. So we're playing catch up. And next thing you know, my father, who was working for NYPD at the time, he was retiring. And the biggest question in my mind was, well, how do I make sure my dad doesn't feel old? And it's a pressing question because when someone uproots from one part of the planet to the other, to make sure that their future generation, and me in this case, has a better life, what do I do to look back? He doesn't really have that huge friend circle. He's left all of that behind. Now it was my time as a son to think of, what would this man have actually dreamed of? When in many ways, again, being first generation and sort of making that kind of a huge uh, transition leap, you let go of your dreams. You take life on a day-to-day -day basis. So here was my opportunity to look back and say, what can I do to change this man's life? And we did. We ended up opening the Masala Wala. I was still working in the, uh, the Fortune 500s at the time as an engineer and almost spent a decade doing that. But while I was doing that, that's when the restaurant opened. And, and somewhere in the back of your mind while you were doing that, were you thinking someday I'm going to open up a restaurant? Or like, where, where was the, the kernel? What was the little seed? I think it's foolish to think that four years of your life define your entire life sometimes. Right. And and what I mean by that is there's many ways we think, we imagine, and I feel that a lot of us end up picturing our life based on whatever has come to us in the past. So if you have chosen a major, have I, 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 there's a massive number of people that change majors. Do we all have life figured out? I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I surely didn't. So I was uh, trying to figure out at that point um, it felt like it's the safest, the best choice possible. It would result in the highest paying job that I could have achieved. And I ended up getting to that point. But the reality was that's not really the final destination of where I wanted to be. And the restaurant came into play because I've grown up in a family where my father, he's an absolute crazy man, truly. He would literally meet someone and say, come to my house. And it's very common in India, by the way. But my father took it to the next level. It's like one in the morning, come to my house, please. My mom's like, who is this person? Next thing you know, my father's cooking, my mom's making some food. And food was a protagonist in my family. And I've always seen my mom, my dad, never having that division of labor where mom cooked, dad earned. It was more about dad equally loved to cook, he equally loved to entertain. And I'm like, how do I harness that energy and share that with New York City? Which is what ended up giving birth to the idea of the Masala Wala, because only a restaurant uh, felt like a very natural choice, that he would have done it, but in many ways we have been scared. We, there has been a humongous sense of fear. Oh my God, opening your own business. It's not a, a path that is followed by many. Therefore, what if there's failure? And Oh, well, took that chance, had a huge fight with my father, actually. He was he was fighting with me because he was scared. But it has become the single most defining moment of point of his life, and mm. I can't peel him out of the restaurant anymore. Well, one of my goals for this particular episode of this podcast 
Michael, is for our kids to listen to it so they know how to treat their father someday. Right? Exactly. Very, that, that's very important. Great. We both have 14-year-olds, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, okay. My, I'm going to make sure my son listens to this because, no, it's really inspiring the way you thought about your your folks um, and not that many people do it that way. So I mean, at least, you know, maybe your culture is a little bit different, but I love that. I love hearing that. Yeah, it, it, it felt natural. It yeah. felt that I, I always ask this question when I was growing up, what was I offering my father at that time? Nothing. Here's a man who dedicated his life, and same with my mom, to say, let me raise this child. Today, I turn around and say, well, thanks for the life. Now, peace. <laughs> I'm going to go my own way. It, so it's almost, and that's what I feel really nurtures a community, builds that sense of faith, trust, empathy, whatever we want to call it. And it's not just family. I think it goes far beyond that to the community as well. Now, Michael, this incredible action on the part of Axion to get funds to Ronnie in two weeks, is that typical? how does that even happen? This this was a particular emergency situation. People think about you know Hurricane Sandy, and you think of the devastation and the water damage. But but really, you know, what happened to small businesses was devastating. And luckily, um, as Ronnie mentioned, Goldman Sachs, but also um, the federal government, the local government, quickly said we need to help out, and they needed to deploy capital. And they uh, created a program that allowed us to lend very very quickly. And that's what we do here. And so it, it, it worked very, very well. And, and, and again, we, we could help reach small businesses that uh, were beyond the scope of banks to really deal with. Uh, before we talk a little bit more about the way Axion works, I can't talk about restaurants without talking about your food. So I just want <laughs> sure. you to give our listeners just a, you know, a, a flavor, is at least to the extent that you can do it with your voice and with our ears, sure. of what would we expect when we came to Masalawala or one of the other restaurants? Yeah, um... And what, so, are you, what are you trying to kind of sure, express with sure. your food? I think the biggest point here is for far too long, food hasn't really been on a level playing field. What I mean by this is there was a time when Italian cuisine wasn't considered, it was still considered ethnic. Today, that's where Indian food is. We consider that this in the, the fringes, this outskirt, this exotic little thing that we show up to. And we have all put it in a very specific box, including me. If you go back a few years as I was growing up, I had a very specific image in my head of what a potential Indian restaurant can look like, can feel like, and what kind of food it would serve. But the reality is India is drastically different from that. We end up, it has happened to Chinese restaurants, a lot of ethnic food. What is red curry, green curry, and yellow curry? And uh, when we talk about Thai food, we invented that. General Tso's chicken came through this whole takeout, all of these you know, scenarios. The question was, after I opened up Masalawala, that's when I really started to recognize these gaps in the industry. So it was a very personal journey that took me and that opened up this whole new world and that said, wait a minute. Why is it? Where do we really belong in the totem pole? Why do we consider some food to be higher where someone can charge you triple the price on a tiny piece of salmon when I give you a plate of food and still people feel like if it's not $9.99, I'm overcharging you? And that's a perception. And if we don't change that, I'm playing it from through the lens of food. If we don't change that, then we don't really move forward as a society. So that's what now led me to jump into it and say, okay, well, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? So let's go make some changes and have fun with it. And I personally love eating quite a bit, so it kind of worked out. But what we do as a restaurant group is we share Indian cuisine in its honest and true format, but looking at it through different lenses, offering the sense of diversity that you would expect. We have rahi that serves modern Indian food. Then we have adda that's serving home-style Indian food. Then you have masala wala that's also 
a mix of home style and street food of India. Each of those are showing you a different image of India that we have somehow believed is always one. And that's fundamentally what we do. And in the near future, there's a very interesting project that we're working on that's coming up after this new restaurant opens that kind of integrates a lot of emerging technology, et cetera, to start. And that's where I'm bringing my engineering degree to play, I guess. Somewhere the money wasn't lost. Um, the support that we've talked about of Axion for Ronnie after Hurricane Sandy, typical of Axion, uh, an outlier? What's the most important thing to know about who Axion serves? You've mentioned 3 billion people on the planet without access to financial services. How do you how do you even aspire to serve that many? What we're trying to do is we find, invest in, and support and help build financial service providers, whether they be early stage fintech companies or microfinance institutions or banks, um, all trying to serve literally 3 billion people who are left out. Today, 1.7 billion people have, have zero access to any financial services, and 1.3 have really terrible access. So, so the numbers are, are quite big. And what we do is, is we're, we're an investor, and we're an advisor, and we're a supporter. And over our history, we've helped to build 110 financial service providers in 50 countries that are today serving millions of people who otherwise would be left out of the global system. More, most recently, we're, we're very, very focused on fintech. Think about your own life, how your mobile phone now has become the center of your life and, what, and data and data analytics and GPS. I'll give you an example. Um, it used to be a few years ago that you would use you know, GPS occasionally, and now I don't know about you, but I don't, I, I don't cross the street without GPS. Well, it turns out that there's a huge satellite industry trying to meet the world's needs for GPS. And in the last three years alone, the quality of the data from satellite images has gone up extraordinarily, and the price has plummeted. So we're working with two companies that have both started out in Kenya using satellite data to meet the needs of smallholder farmers. So one of them is a lender called Apollo, and the other one is an insurer called Pula. And they're sort of sister companies. They started out in the same space, but now they've grown out of that space. Uh, but they share a lot of history together. From the satellite data, Apollo can tell what type of seed, how much seed, what type of fertilizer, what, how much fertilizer, and even estimate a farmer's ability to re repay a loan, which is extraordinary because part of why it's so hard to meet the financial needs of farmers is you have to go to the farm. Well, if you can do that from satellite data, you can really change the way we can meet, meet the needs. And Pula, you can see from satellite data if there's been a flood. You can see if there's been a drought and you can repay insurance. You can see exactly what the conditions are from the sky. And so that's a huge source of data. But it's not just satellite data. It's also mobile phones. And uh, we're living in a world of an explosion of data. And that is allowing us to understand the needs of billions of people who we've never really understood what their financial needs were before. And so you're funding financial services companies, helping to build them, providing the seed capital for them and the advice and the assistance that, you know, I'm assuming like sharing best practices so that they know how to grow. And then they in turn are serving the kind of families That's on exactly the ground right. that you're talking about. That's exactly right. We, we grew up, I'll, I'll just give you the background a little bit. Accent started in 1961 as a really a private sector Peace Corps. 
And uh, we were doing that, which is quite extraordinary because the Peace Corps hadn't been created. Uh, in fact, one of our, our founder went on to run the Peace Corps later. So for like the first 12 years, we were doing community development, uh, in first in Venezuela and then throughout Latin America. In 1972, uh, we said our clients need more than community development. They need capital. So we started experimenting, making very small loans to the poor. We were doing it in Brazil and Latin America. Dr. Yunus was doing it in Bangladesh. Others were doing it in Southeast Asia. And that's the beginning of microfinance, microlending, microcredit. Axion built a string of nonprofits in almost every Latin American country to make small loans to the poor. In 1992 in Bolivia, we created the world's first for-profit bank focused on the poor called Banco Sol. And all of a sudden, it could access the debt markets, access the equity markets, hire talent in a different way. Later on, it was regulated in a different way. Later on, it could take deposits. Banco Sol had been doing very well as a nonprofit. It took off and, and, and went to much greater scale as a for-profit. So we went back and recreated all those nonprofits as for-profits. And that's where we really saw that you can have a huge social impact, but also harness the capital markets to get to greater scale. We then expanded to 10 countries in Africa, India, China, the Philippines, most recently Myanmar. And that's, that's over the last several decades. But in the last decade, we've really become a fintech venture capital investor. We're probably the leading seed level investor in fintech for inclusion in the world. And we've also created the first global fintech fund for the underserved. And again, it's all about harnessing the capital markets to provide financial services for the rest of the world. Uh, you were saying to me earlier, Michael, when we were talking before we came into the studio that, um, and this is a belief that we very much share uh, at Share Our Strength, uh, that all the philanthropy in the world would not be enough to solve this problem, that you have to in effect, create wealth. Um, we, at Share Strength, we call it community wealth because it goes back into the communities that we serve as, as opposed to uh, individual or, or corporate wealth, but that you have to leverage the markets and leverage the, the market's ability to amass capital because you know, as much as people would like to think that you could solve these problems with charity, you can't. Is that a fair Absolutely. statement? We're a nonprofit. A good portion of our budget comes from donations, but we're a big believer in harnessing the capital markets to change the world. When you're talking about financial exclusion, a problem so big, as you said, all the philanthropy in the world is insufficient to that task. What, what philanthropic capital does allow us to do is take chances that we couldn't do with commercial capital. But we're, we're, we've always worked at that nexus of using philanthropic support but ultimately to create commercially viable companies that are trying to change the world. We didn't use the words, but um, today people talk about social enterprises and impact investing. Microfinance really was the beginning of social enterprises and impact investing. And now it's very, very popular, uh, but it's exciting. We've been doing it for a very long time. I'll tell you a story uh, that was um, important and inspiring and, and ties to a client that I met, a, a, a woman named... Sarah Arazzo in Elmhurst, Queens. Mm. Um, and I met her, and she's a client of Axion, and we had given her a loan. And, and um, she, like many, um, was creating a small business, and she had a home with her husband, and, and they made her living, she made her living room into uh, a childcare center. And she was taking care of a couple kids, and she got a small loan from Axion. And with that loan, she put down mats 
and really transformed a living room into a childcare center. And she also did something brilliant. She um, she bought T-shirts for all the kids. So each day they would go into the park and the kids were wearing the T-shirts and it was advertising. And then all of a sudden other parents would say, hey, can you take care of our kids and start growing. And when I met her, she was applying for her uh, state license to uh, significantly expand. And the reason that story uh, was so powerful to me is uh, my grandmother. So my grandfather, um, during the Depression, lost his job and really never uh, recovered from that. And like many women, my grandmother did what she needed to do to put food on the table for her family. And she created a child care center in her home. And she did what she needed to do. And she, this was in Manhattan Beach, many, you know, decades ago. And um, she built a school that is still an ongoing school and built and literally built it out of her home. And, and so, um, you know, uh, she has been an inspiration. More importantly, of course, she was an inspiration from, from my mother, who uh, was a, obviously a very powerful force in my life. Um, but then when I meet a client like, like that who's just living the same, that, that yep. story I see over and over again of, of immigrants struggling, figuring it out, becoming entrepreneurs, and building a dream. It's, it's, uh, it's inspiring. Ronnie, uh, you're also involved in philanthropy. I understand, and have a really deep commitment to using your platform and the restaurants as a way of engaging in community and being philanthropic. I think we all have a little more than we need sometimes, that it's okay to share. And I certainly feel that because my life has gone through so many really highs and really lows that you get to really see like, wait a minute, I can survive, it's okay. And you appreciate when you have a little bit more sometimes. So what ended up happening for me was not only did we start getting involved in the local community in various different charities, et cetera, different ways of uh, starting to impact, but I started to, it was again a, a personal mission of starting to see how do we change the educational process of how uh, there's a huge gap if you go to a place like India where um, how women don't even get the chance to get educated. And I ended up visiting a village with my family in the outskirts of West Bengal, India. I'm from Calcutta. And I will never forget the very first uh, meeting when we were just meeting some kids. There was one guy that came in. He was kind of hunched over, and he was holding his shirt. And I initially thought he was probably just nervous. And the headmaster of the school says, sit straight. And he kind of does, but he's still holding on to that middle portion of the shirt. Um, after the second time, he simply whispers and he says, no button. I get goosebumps mm. every time I think about mm. that. Here's a human being that is probably no different than I am. I happen to be in a position that's far more fortunate. So therefore, it's almost imperative that I do something. Here's an individual that truly cannot show up to school because of a button that they cannot afford. So we ended up starting... a. A very small, within my personal means, a scholarship program for a group of 10 kids. Um, and then we realized it, the, the problem wasn't being solved there. There were parents that were not even willing to send their kids to school because a lot of the fathers didn't feel comfortable sending their daughters to a school that's so far away. So they would just say, no, you stay home. It's okay, I'll just get you married at some point. To me, there's something drastically wrong with that picture. So we ended up building a, a girls' hostel where they can actually come over 
stay and have a safe place and actually continue their education. And then the entire family changes. And the reason I do that is because somewhere along the lines, I have had many such occurrences in very different ways. You mentioned kind of highs and lows that you, you've been through, as we all yeah. have. Um, and so, you know, I'd be interested in hearing about, sure. you know, was there a, a time or can you describe a time where somebody reached out and made a big difference in your life? Absolutely. Um, so it, it, it's it's tough to answer this question because I feel I'm truly a culmination of so many people who have stepped forward, uh, provided a helping hand. And that's what it's not just me. It's most of us, I, if we acknowledge that or not, that's a separate topic. Uh, there's one individual, his name is uh, Dr. Mukul Arya. Um, he has become sort of an older brother to me. He's uh, one of the top GI surgeons in New York um, doing some really exciting work. And he came on board and believed in what I was envisioning to create at a time when I had nothing. When I say nothing, we sat in Masalawala over a pair of samosas. And the very first time I met this man, we spoke for four and a half hours. There was no plan. He was running late. He was like, ah, should I even come? I'm like, yeah, just come. I'm here. First time I ever met him. But from that point on, here's a man who has had the most unwavering faith in the success that we have achieved today. It wasn't, there were times there was a, a there was a business that have shut down. And if you are part of that company and you see something not going in your favor, you're going to question that. This was a man who never did. Hmm. He actually stepped up and said, that's all right. We're going to keep moving forward. And from that entire turnaround to the New York Times review to being one of the best restaurants in the country, I can assure you it wasn't just me. And what was at the heart of that connection between the two of you? Do you think? I think we both believed in that vision. And he said something very interesting to me. We talk a lot on the phone. And he says, all my life I've fought to be Indian. Hmm. Because I, he is about a decade older than me. And uh, that makes him in the 40s, old man. But, <laughs> uh, but he, he says, and he says, this is the first time I'm speaking to someone who's proud of that identity, doesn't feel that it segregates people, but it really brings people together. And that's really what we are as a community. And it was that unifying vision that brought us together that said, we are not doing this for the short term, some quick gain, some quick profit that's going to come out of it. We are in it for the long haul. So that, and he has been part of every single venture that I have built to a point where I just say, just here, just let's go. We're doing this next. And how did you first, like what brought you two together in the first place? Through a common friend. He had an uh, idea that maybe one day it would have been fun to have a restaurant, but he's like, I knew I wasn't capable of doing it. So he's like, I needed to work with someone who I felt had the right vision. And he says he's met with other folks, but he says nothing ever really excited me. Uh, he's a doctor by profession. So and he's, he's an extreme visionary guy to a point where, you see, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants that we don't always, you know, like I say, acknowledge. Um, I think one of the people, uh, without a doubt, would be my father. One of them would be this man. And it wasn't just someone who came forward to say, here's a check. No, here's a man who said, let's fight these battles together. And we're going to go forward, mm -hmm. rain or shine, we're going to make it happen. And he's one of the core reasons of why I'm here today. Boy, everybody should have somebody like that in their life, right? That's a, that's a life changer. And honestly, I, without a doubt, because there are moments I lose faith in myself. And he would remind me, he's like, you're kidding me. 
And I'm like, how are you believing in me right now when nothing seems to be going in our favor? Everything seems to be wrong. Everything you should be questioning, you don't. And he says, no, I believed in you on day one and I will forever do. And he gives me, when someone gives you that kind of unwavering faith, you feel like you can just reach for the stars. And I think that's really, uh, that's yeah. what this man represents. Wow. And for, for me, that kind of provoked the question that I wanted to ask both of you. Are we headed in the right direction? You know, there's kind of always a question of things getting better, things getting worse. Some of that depends on your sense of history and just of how much of a global uh, knowledge base and perspective you have. But what is your sense? Are we heading in the right direction in terms of global poverty in places like India? I know where there's a rising middle class in India. You hear a lot about the economic growth there. Is that reaching the people it needs to reach? There, there, there's no question that over the last several, several decades, of human history, we have made more progress around poverty than at any other time in history. And a lot of it is driven by India and China. And there's been real progress in moving people out of poverty. Uh, financial inclusion, if you think about it, um, we, we focus on trying to create a financially inclusive world. It's very hard to imagine anyone working their way out of poverty without some of the most basic financial tools that, again, we may take for granted, but uh, a safe place to save, um, some credit to build a business, insurance. You you talked about the so moving. You're kind of defining financial inclusion with these kind of bullet points, right? Absolutely. Th those are the ingredients. Oh, when, yeah. when I speak about financial inclusion, I'm talking about um, a safe place to save, access to credit, efficient payments, cheap and easy payments. Um, remittances, and also the financial education to use those tools wisely. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Again, you have that in your life, but for many, many people, they don't have any of that. But you talked about the progress we've made, but it's very, very fragile. And so part of what I'm interested in is, is um, um, the tools to keep people out of poverty. The single largest cause of poverty is you know, an illness or a death, and someone, all of a sudden, the wage earner in the family isn't you know, passes away or gets hurt, and the whole family suffers from it. Now, that's a case where you should have insurance, but insurance doesn't exist. So we need to create these tools that exist to fill these needs. And what we've seen over time is a lot of the microfinance industry was very, very credit-oriented. And because they didn't have savings and insurance, they sometimes would misuse the loan product. So in that example, the wage earner passes away, and the family would take out a loan. They shouldn't take out a loan. They should have insurance, but insurance doesn't exist. Similarly, you know, to pay for utilities or a child's education, they borrow, and they shouldn't borrow. They should save for that. But so, so what our, our vision is you need the full array of financial tools, and that's how you make sure each one is used, used more appropriately. We've made, made great progress, but it's still very, very fragile. For me, it always feels that uh, in the nonprofit sector that about – you know, 95% of us are working on the symptoms of poverty. I feel like Axion is actually getting to the root causes of, of, of poverty. Is part of your, is that fair? In, so, so it's, it's, in my mind, um, the way we'll solve poverty actually takes several significant interventions. It does take um, education, it does take uh, access to health care, but I do think if you listed the four or five major interventions that we need to change the world about global poverty, I do think financial inclusion is right up there. In and of itself, it's it's not the silver bullet, sure. but it's an important part There is part no silver bullet. I think we've probably both been around long enough yeah. to 
acknowledge that, but it's definitely, it's aimed at, I guess, getting to some of the root causes of poverty. Absolutely. It's important. Absolutely. And again, the, we talk about micro-entrepreneurs. They're not entrepreneurs by choice. There's no job that they can go through. There, there are no companies, there are no corporations. So they're, they're living in places where they just have to figure it out for themselves. And so they, they have to <laughs> become entrepreneurs. And again, you need a little bit of capital. You need a little bit of, of support to get off the ground. That's true in you know, rural Africa, that's true in many parts of the United States as well. I'm going to ask you a question. I feel like it's a hard question and you can say it's an unfair question. So we'll move on. But I feel like when you talk about 3 billion people being left out of financial services, um, to me, that makes me wonder, how do you, as the leader of Axion, how do you measure success? What does success look like? The num that, that number is so vast that it would almost be daunting to say that we're going to be able to solve this problem. Do you have it broken down into chunks or milestones that so, you're trying to achieve? So um, are we trying to reach 3 billion people ourselves now? Uh, what Axion is trying to do is create demonstration models in key markets and in key uh, technologies and in key financial products. And then show the world that you can make a difference here. I'll give an example. Again, we grew up in microfinance. Um, we showed that you can harness the capital markets to build successful microfinance institutions that could have an enormous social impact. And while we were doing that, um, literally billions of dollars from the capital markets have come into microfinance. We're trying to do the same thing with fintech today. So by highlighting, by finding early stage companies that are extraordinarily innovative and showing that they can grow, have a big social impact and a good financial return, we will drive capital into the sector. That's how we'll raise three billion. That's how we'll reach three, three billion. We're not gonna do it by ourselves. Um, plus we also do work with a lot of you know, large financial institutions. Uh, MasterCard, JP Morgan, uh, MetLife, our um, city are all big partners of ours and if MasterCard, for example, sees some of the innovation that we're seeing and they decide to take it to global scale, that's part of how we're going to change the world. At Share Our Strength, we've got a lot of big partners, but the biggest of all is City. Um, and I don't know if I'd cut you up on that, but City has emerged as our number one partner and sponsor, and they've been really amazing in helping us. That's terrific. That's yeah. terrific to hear. So for you, Michael, what are the kind of the gating factors, the obstacles to Axion reaching its goals? What uh, it, it does if you could wave a wand, would you have more money? Would you have more talent? Would you have more time? All of those. What do you think are, what's it going to take? So one of uh, this particular moment right now, we're seeing um, spectacular early stage innovative companies. And there's really a pioneer gap in terms of early stage equity. So, so a lot of great ideas um, can't get the funding they need to get to greater scale. We're just scratching that surface. And again, I think we're, we're um, in the world of fintech, early stage investing to promote financial inclusion. We're one of the only ones out there. So I get to say we're one of the leaders in the world because we're the only so ones. So I was going to say, you're, um, not just, you're not just the biggest, but you're the only one. Well, right? I, 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 I mean, I, do you have competition? I, I, Is there well, competition? So, so um, there's a ton of money going into fintech. There's a decent amount of money going into early stage seed level investing. And there's some money going into financial inclusion generally. But if you draw those circles, we're the only ones that occupy all three on a global basis. 
um, seed fintech inclusion. So I do get to say we're the leader because uh, we own it exclusively. I'd like to change that. I'd like to show that this is working and we are showing that's working. And I'd like, I'd, I, if, you, if I could wave a wand, I would say um, I would love to see many, many more people investing in um, early stage fintech innovation that can really help change the world. Again, huge social impact, but also good investments. Give us another example of uh, an innovative fintech company that we, that you get really excited about. Um, so, um, uh, Lydia is a company in Lagos, Nigeria. What they do is they work with small mom and pop shops. Again, completely ignored by the by the Nigerian banking system. And what they do is they help the, the Lydia. Their clients live in a cash world, and Lydia will walk in and help you digitize. Um, 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 basically, your they'll help digitize the small companies. By doing that, all of a sudden, they make that company visible. So then Lydia can say, I see exactly what you're transacting on a regular basis, and I can see what kind of credit you can support and I can lend to you. And I can lend to you faster than, first of all, the banks won't lend to you at all, but I can also make you a loan in a very short amount of time. And as Ronnie was saying, um, it's not always just access. Access to capital is huge, but access on a timely basis is really, really important. So Lydia is is serving a population um, in Nigeria, and I'll just jump to another country. It's a very similar model, but in Mexico, a company called Confio, uh, with a K. And what what's happened in a few Latin American countries is um, Mexico, Colombia, uh, Peru, and Chile have recently, in the last few years, passed laws requiring uh, digital receipts and digital invoices. And the goals of the country are to promote um, tax compliance and move some of the informal sector to be more formalized. That's, their, that's the goals. But what they've, what they've done is they've unleashed a tremendous source of data. And Confio is using that as well as 5,000 other points of data to become the fastest online lender for small businesses in Mexico. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is close to right that 98% of the companies in Mexico are small businesses and 95% of them are ignored by the banks. Hmm. And so Confio is really meeting a huge need and it's a very, very exciting company. This notion that you can, and you said it at the very beginning of our conversation, that you can be in a situation where you have no financial services within any distance of you, uh, I was trying to think like, what would I equate that to? And I was thinking of, you know, sometime in the last ten months, my ATM card stopped working, <laughs> and, you know, and I had to wait like four days or six days until the new one came. And it's like I, you know, I could go to a bank and write a check and still do other things, right? So I had lots of other fallback options. But just knowing what a bad feeling that was, um, and I'm sure you're working with a lot of families who, because they haven't experienced that, they don't know what they don't know, right? They don't even know it exists, but. Man, you can be trapped. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I often, in trying to explain to people what it's like to uh, be financially excluded, it's it's that thought experiment. Imagine if you didn't have any credit cards. Imagine no debit cards. Imagine no ATMs. Imagine all of that. Imagine no insurance. You know, imagine not having health health insurance or auto insurance. Or um, that's what their lives are like. You're right. They may not appreciate the difference, but increasingly they are. Um, so I describe, you know, a, a, a woman 
uh, who might have to travel five hours to make a simple utility payment to keep the lights on. Well, guess what? Today, increasingly, those 3 billion people, 80% of them now have cell phones. Increasingly, they're starting to have smartphones. You've got this cell phone in your pocket, and you say, well, wait a second. Maybe I should be able to push a button <laughs> and pay that utility. And so there's a demand side of technology is, is not only changing how we can supply people with financial services, but also is raising expectations. People are demanding. People are tired of waiting on lines. Mm -hmm. They can say, like, why should I have to do that? I should be able to push a button. Uh, we work in Myanmar. Myanmar is a country of 50 million people living, many, most living in poverty. And um, it's been left out of the global financial system for 50 years. It actually has the... Um, fastest rate of smartphone adoption of an, of an emerging market country anywhere in the world. In the United States, we have something like 80, 85% smartphone penetration. Most developing countries have 30%. Uh, they have feature phones, which are non-smartphones, not internet-connected inter phones. But Myanmar just joined the world recently and already has something like 85% smartphone adoption. And it's just because so, there was this latent demand and all of a sudden the, the doors opened? They're leapfrogging the leapfroggers. If you join the world's economy today, you would jump straight to 5G. And that's what they're doing. Right. Which, right. But what's exciting to us is if you think the future of financial services has something to do with smartphones, and, and I do, <laughs> we can help shape it in, in, a, a, um, in a way that can make a difference for people living in poverty all around the world. I guess the future of everything has something to do with smartphones, right? I think that's right. <laughs> that's really, I think that's, that's right. It's really remarkable. Tell us a little bit about what's next, Ronnie. We're forming a, a lab and uh, around food tech and arts. And one of the first projects we're jumping into is really how to leverage and integrate um, augmented reality and virtual reality into your dining. Oh, what's that? What's that look like? Oh, this, this you just really kind of cool. blew my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm having a failure of imagination. What would that look like? Sure. So imagine you walk in, you put on these goggles, and that transports you to a completely different reality. And within each reality, it could be either abstract, or you could actually find out where your food's coming from. You can actually sit, imagine in that farmer's room and actually have a meal because you're surrounded and immersed in that space. And there's so many ways to share these stories. And it really, it's sort of this infinite set of possibilities where uh, there's some stuff that I can't talk about yet, but I can tell you that we will be launching this product in the fall. It will be the first of its kind. I was going to ask you, anybody else is doing this? You're the first. The first ones uh, in wow. that regard. There's other folks that are using augmented reality, et cetera, but no one has taken it in the direction that we're really looking at. We're working with someone from the New Museum, one of the fellows, and is this artist from Italy that is, I, I went to his lab, it blew my mind, and I'm like, his name is Mattia. Um, crazy guy, but phenomenally talented and crazy in a good way. And uh, we recently ended up going to South Korea to do an exhibition around this concept, got a lot of good stuff going on on uh, Korean television. Um, and then now we're about to launch this on... Uh, Sometime it's going to be somewhere in the village. Imagine instead of going out for Indian food, imagine going to India or having yes. that whole experience yes. all in a meal. Without yeah. a doubt. You're actually walking by a certain beach and imagine a vendor that's making this corn and actually puts it in front of you. Guess what? You can actually pick it up and eat it. <laughs> that's the difference. And all of your senses. It's a great senses, idea. Yeah. How do we manipulate them? How do we um, technically we can see we should do mind. this podcast with uh, we have to reality. do it again. I know. Yeah. We, just have to, <laughs> we have to. We have to do the whole thing again in nine or ten months or whenever you're ready. 
hundred percent. I think uh, sometime in the fall, I would love to invite you guys. So yeah, I'm, that'd be that'd be, be special. What's next for you, Michael, and for Axion? Well, uh, what are we trying to do? So our our seed investing, we are actually tripling it over the next couple of years. We've we um, and our early stage meaning it'll fintech, get to a, a, an order of magnitude of where. Um, so we've we we've already made about forty invest. We've looked at. 2,000 companies to invest in about 40, we're going to triple that over the next several years. Um, we also just recently got uh, the largest grant we've ever gotten in our history from MasterCard to um, aim for 10 million individuals and small merchants who are completely left out and to help bring them into the, the, the uh, digital economy by working to digitize small banks and financial service providers all around the world. So it's an incredible partnership um, uh, that we're very excited about. And so, this is this sounds like enlightened philanthropy on MasterCard's yes. part in terms of understanding that there's going to be a future market here. So I'll, I'll, I'll give a commercial for them. Um, recently in the United States, there was a big corporate tax cut, and most corporations bought back their stock or gave one-time bonuses to their employees. And uh, Ajay Benga at MasterCard uh, endowed a half billion dollars huh. in a foundation called the Center for Inclusive Growth. And just by the name, you hear yes. what their mission is. And you're right, it's philanthropic, but it is it is aiming to try... They're very aligned in trying to create an economy that is inclusive for all. And so we were fortunate enough, enough to be their first partner. And it's a very, very ambitious program, but it's, it's exciting. It's uh, We work with financial institutions all around the world, they're all trying to harness new technologies. And we sort of specialize in knowing the needs, the financial needs of the poor, and knowing the state of the art of new technology. And that's what these these organizations are, are struggling with. So we can help them a lot. MasterCard deserves the commercial. That's pretty impressive. It's great. Thank you both so much for being with us. Do you have a website, Ronnie, for for your restaurant group? Are they all can they all be found in one place? They are not yet, so okay. they're all independent. So, so they, like um, Rahi NYC. So just add an NYC at the end of the name. Okay, and that's the restaurant. Rahi Ada and uh, Masalawala. Yep. Okay, and Axion, of course, does have a website that you can learn a lot on. Axion.org, A-C-C-I-O-N.org. And are there ways for people who are listening to get involved, certainly Absolutely. as contributors, donors, volunteers? What's Absolutely, the best? contributing, donating, uh, donating, but also uh, sign up for our newsletters, here's what's going on, um, and, and get involved. We, we uh, travel with us and, and um, uh, support financial inclusion generally. Great. Well, we've learned a lot about financial inclusion. We've learned a lot about Indian uh, cuisine tonight. You have yet today. to taste it. So thank you. I've, I, I want to <laughs> taste it. Uh, Ronnie Mazumdar, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Um, and Michael Schlein, great to reconnect and great to hear about the really amazing thank and so impactful much. work of Axion. It's just, it's really inspiring. So terrific. thanks for being thank with us. Thank you for us. having us. Um, well, this has been a great conversation. Thanks to the entire team at Share Our Strength, who makes uh, Add Passion and Stir possible. Uh, we're in New York City at Argot Studios. Uh, thanks to them and to our producer, Paul Woody Woodle, who is always here with us and always <laughs> making the podcast work. Uh, to Kelly Griffin back in Washington, D.C., and to my sister, Debbie Shore, who usually gets to do these conversations with me. Uh-huh. I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.